Right, good morning, everyone. Um, we're reading from Luke chapter 22, um, verse 63, and then into chapter 23, um, verse 25. Um, and as we begin this reading, um, we're coming to the part of Luke's gospel where Jesus has been arrested um, and he's facing the Jewish and Roman uh, leaderships and courts. So please turn your Bibles there. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, Prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, If I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They asked, Are you then the Son of God? He replied, You say that I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar, and he claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted, He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied with him. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing wrong to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, why? What crime has this man committed? I have found him in no, I found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and the shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, 
the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Thank you, Kelly. Well, happy 21st birthday, uh, everybody. Woo! Yeah. Give it up for yourselves. Uh, now, I've got some photos here. Remember, Ruth, uh, our, our first Sunday? I think hopefully we'll... Uh, there you go. Look at that. I haven't changed a bit. <laughs> Not at all. Yeah. It, it is awesome to see um, so many old friends there, um, some who are still with us and some who have moved to other places. Um, so you can see Anne and Steve singing there and, and Vic on the Vic's, keys. Vic's on yeah. the keyboard, yep. Same band. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so that was the first Sunday. Uh, and, you know, it went, went terrific. It was encouraging. Some of our friends came along to join us, so it sort of swelled out the crowd a little bit. But then within two days, uh, we were page three of Sydney Morning Herald and front page of the Newcastle Herald. Just, I'll show you um, Newcastle Herald. I, I haven't... I'm disappointed because there was actually... You know how they used to have those posters outside the newsagent? Uh, and the poster that day said... Rival Anglican Church plus Sports Lift Out. Uh, and so that's how they were advertising uh, the Newcastle Herald on that day. They, they mustn't have had many stories, but yeah, just tell us a little bit about. Yeah. So the Bishop of Grafton um, was quoted as saying, it's rude and unacceptable, covert and deceptive. The Bishop of Central Coast was quoted as saying, strident and arrogant move. Yeah, so, um, and it wasn't like, uh, like, so we'd met with the Bishop of uh, the Central Coast. Uh, Ruth and I had met with him about a year earlier. We'd prayed with him. It was very warm. We were uh, with him for an hour or so in his lounge yeah, room. And so, and so after this pa- paper article came out, I, I rang him up and I said, were you accurately reported uh, in, the, in the news? Anyway, the Central Coast advocate, um, a few days later, thought, oh, is there a story here? So uh, one of their journalists came around, and it was a much nicer, uh, kind of warmer article that I he think he put. was going for a halo kind of look. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's just how I am all the time. I just yeah, look yeah. like that. <laughs> um, so fur flies as new church faces a baptism of fire. Yeah, so they quoted this time, not exactly um, accurately, but anyway, there are plenty of new churches springing up all the time. This is from, they quoted Dave saying, um, and frankly, I'm surprised my church has become so newsworthy. I don't, I don't think I would have said my church. I've never talked about the lakes as my church. It's our church or it's Jesus church. But anyway, they also said, Mr. Sheath 33, I was 32. I'm exactly as... <laughs> I'm exactly so. You can't trust what you read it's in not, the paper. Not much time between us. Um, yes. So lives at Kalanivar with his wife Ruth, 32. Their three children, Daniel, Micah, and Sarah. Um, yeah, but they picked up our hearts longing, didn't they? Yeah. So they quoted, "We are here for the long term, and we're committed to the Central Coast." But you probably can't read the caption down the bottom. That's what I love most about that article. Let me show. Let me highlight it. Biblical proportions, David Sheath. <laughs> Right there. Anyway, so that's the best photo of me there has, ever has been, and that was all the first week uh, of our church. Mm-hmm. 
So, yeah, so if we're looking back over the photos, um, there were many moments of joy and many people came because of those articles. Um, the, in the um, top there, there's um, the baptism, where our first um, people that became Christians, Linda and Sonia, um, so, and they're still with us, which is just a wonderful joy. One of the things I found as I was looking back over the photos uh, is there's also a sense of grief um, because there are some beautiful stories of people who have become followers of Jesus, uh, but some of those, ba- uh, at least one of those baptised that day is no longer following Jesus, has turned away from Jesus for the time. Uh, and, that, and those sort of stories do bring grief and there are griefs that come over the years, aren't there? Mm. Uh, and so it's kind of, church life is like that, joys, but there's also the griefs and setbacks. Yeah, do you want to tell us about our kids? Yeah, so if we look at this one, you can see um, that Jackie's looking happy, but the others are not, the kids are not quite so happy. They look happy. grumpy, yeah. grumpy, don't they? <laughs> so it may be because um, it was hard at the school. We didn't have enough. We had the hall, but no classrooms for the kids at all, as Anne was saying before. Um, and so the, the bigger kids had to trek across the oval, through the mud, past the smelly pigs um, in the hot sun to go to the f- smelly footy club. So that might be why they're all looking a bit sombre. I'm not sure. But, um, yeah, it's a great joy to see those kids um, and at least two of them are heading into full-time ministry at the moment. So, yeah. Um, yes, but, but again, some of our kids, and this breaks our heart, some of the kids who have grown up in our church uh, are not following Jesus uh, at the moment. Uh, and and uh, I'll talk about some of the, the big joys right at the end, but I just want to point out that uh, amidst all the joys, there have been setbacks and griefs uh, and opposition at every step along the way. And it would be tempting to become pessimistic. I reckon if you are uh, you know, journeying through these sort of situations, it would be tempting to become pessimistic. But that's... It's that's, not actually likely to happen to Dave. He's yeah. just an optimist I, at heart. I, I, I'm actually a chronic optimist. Uh, and it's partly personality... Mm. But I want to say that I think there is deeper foundation for optimism, um, even amidst difficulties and setbacks. Uh, and that's what I want to highlight today uh, as we look at God's Word. So we're just looking at the passage we're up to in Luke's Gospel. But we'll see this morning as we unpack this part of God's Word, uh, we see the appalling miscarriage of justice that happens at Jesus' trials. Um, but... In the midst of that, we'll also see great foundational good reason for hope and optimism. So thanks. I'm going to get Ruth back up uh, at the end. So thank you, darling. Uh, And so let me uh, just set things up. Open your Bibles at Luke, the end of Luke 22. We're looking at the legal trials. It's kind of in inverted commas, legal trials. They're They're not very well done. Uh, they're not really following good process. But these are the, the trials Jesus endured before he was condemned to be crucified. Uh, and so just let me just show you what happens briefly. So you've got the Sanhedrin, which is the, the, the Jewish ruling council, the religious leaders of the Jews. That's the first trial. The second one is before Pontius Pilate, who is the Roman governor representing Caesar Augustus. The third trial is before Herod, who is like a puppet Jewish king, uh, the political leader of the Jews. And then it comes back to Pontius Pilate 
for the final verdict. Uh, and so we're kind of going to trace that through, but I'm just going to make three points uh, along the way. It starts with the Sanhedrin, right? The Jewish ruling council. Um, the high priests and the religious leaders, they arrest Jesus. They blindfold him, mock him. Then at daybreak, they conduct their interrogation of Jesus. Verse 67, if you are the Messiah, tell us. Now, is Jesus God's Messiah? That is the big question. Is Jesus God's forever king, the long-promised, prophesied, long-awaited king that will rule all things forever? Now, Jesus is asked that question or or demanded to answer that. Uh, If you are the Messiah, tell us. Notice Jesus doesn't answer directly. Uh, All of Jesus' interactions are either silence or they're very elusive. Uh, He's hard to pin down in this trial. But he does give them an expectation in verse 69. From now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. Now, that, that answer and the exchange that follows, uh, it, it will echo three great prophecies of the Messiah from the Old Testament. Now, I'm not going to dig into them in detail. I've, I've flashed them on the screen. Uh, you can chase those down later yourselves. But in this interaction, Jesus and the religious leaders have three particular scriptures in mind and they kind of come to the surface. One is uh, Daniel 7, and we've looked at that a lot over the last month, Uh, the prophecy of this son of man, this human, coming to God and being given all glory and honour and authority to rule forever. Psalm 110, where the Messiah is invited by God to sit at my right hand with every enemy subject to him, Psalm 2, the Messiah is called the Son of God, a relationship of father-son with God. And God says, I will give the nations as your inheritance. And so notice Jesus, he doesn't say, I am the Messiah. That's for them to work out. But he does say everything that God had promised, uh, to paraphrase, right? Everything that God had promised about the Messiah and his almighty rule, you can expect to experience that from now on. From now on, the Messiah will rule. And verse 70, they asked, are you then the son of God? Uh, And it seems to me, I wonder whether it's more of a statement. So you are the son of God. And notice Jesus' answer, you say that I am. Uh, Is Jesus... God's forever king. I I just want to say to all of us, uh, and I want to say to our whole region, that is the most important question that you will ever have to answer. Is Jesus the Messiah? Uh, And now most of us here in this room have concluded, yes, he is my king. Uh, Many of you would say the same. He is my king, my saviour. And it makes all the difference. It just radically changes life to have Jesus as your king. Uh, One day, every knee will bow, but right now many of us have have chosen willingly and joyfully to bow the knee 
to King Jesus. And what a delight over the last 21 years to look back and to see hundreds of people who have made that decision and then gone through in baptism to declare Jesus is my king. Uh, In a world that feels like it's pushing Christianity to the edges, it is just so beautiful to see Jesus continue to draw people to himself. Next Next week, we're going to hear Gary's story. And I love Gary's story. Uh, you'll see the video next. We've got a bit of a video interview because he's going to be baptised at Easter. But Gary started coming to church five years ago. And when Gary first started coming, he was not interested in the slightest. He was there kind of reluctantly supporting his wife. He'd come, you know, once every month or so. Um, and, but over the last year or so, uh, he comes along to our evening church, our church at five. Over the last couple of years, he's been here every week, just without fail. And he's listening and engaged. Uh, and earlier this year, he became a follower of Jesus. Uh, and it's just like God wore him down uh, and softened his heart to actually start listening uh, to not keep Jesus at a distance. And so he's going to be baptised on Easter Sunday. Uh, and that will be a beautiful thing. Yeah, yeah, but you'll hear more next week, so you can clap next week, yeah. Um, is Jesus the Messiah? Well, Gary says yes, right? I say yes. That's the question at the heart of this trial. Is Jesus the Messiah? Now, notice some people are prejudiced against Jesus, um, refusing to weigh the evidence. The religious leaders were like that. That word prejudice, I like that word because it has the idea of prejudging something. To actually come to a conclusion even before weighing the evidence. And that was the religious leaders. Uh, they, they have this trial, but they're not looking for answers. They're looking for some ammunition. And so that's why through the whole night, they physically abuse Jesus they emotionally torment him and mock him. This is, this is in the hours leading up to his trial. Right? They're, they're abusing the very person that they're going to have on trial. Then they interrogate him. And the interrogation ends with their accusation, so you're the son of God, and Jesus reply, you say that I am. It's not a lot to go on, but for them it's enough. And with that exchange, the trial is over. Verse 71. Why do we need any more testimony? We've heard it from his own lips. I don't think that verdict would hold up, would it, under scrutiny? Uh, just that, that whole process is just in, deeply flawed. There's no genuine attempt to weigh the evidence. They merely want some reason to accuse Jesus. And they feel like they've got a thread Now, the whole of Luke's gospel has been about presenting compelling evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, That's why Luke and John and Mark and Matthew, that's why they wrote their gospel, because they they saw and believed these things from themselves, and they want to pass that on to us to believe as well. Um, And the religious leaders had seen it all, right? They'd seen John the Baptist and his baptisms and his testimony that Jesus is the Messiah. They'd heard the voice from heaven where God said, this is my son, listen to him. Uh, uh, They had seen the miracles of Jesus. They'd heard his teaching. They knew the Old Testament prophecies 
And they knew, they, they should have been able to see that the things God promised and the things Jesus were doing pointed very directly towards Jesus being the Messiah. But none of that was considered. All of that evidence is just dismissed and swept aside. They had decided the outcome before a word was spoken. They had evidence, but they ignored it. And isn't that just tragic? Uh, just, just, just to have the opportunity for genuine evaluation of who Jesus is, but there's no genuine attempt here. And I, I just want to point out that same prejudice towards Jesus has continued for the last 2,000 years. Some people still refuse to weigh the evidence for Jesus. Some people just reject Jesus out of prejudice. They've made a decision without even weighing any evidence for him. Um, and, and so that's the attitude towards Jesus. But sometimes that prejudice spills over in, t- in terms of how people treat us as God's people. So let me just tell you a story from church. About five years ago, a Facebook group called Human Rights Advocacy Australia, right? Human Rights Advocacy Australia, this Facebook group waged a campaign to remove churches like ours from public schools. Um, Now, it sounds impressive, doesn't it? Human Rights Advocacy Australia. When I first heard of this Facebook group, I, I felt a little bit intimidated until I started digging a little bit and realised this is one man um, who had visited our church once but kind of did this little lone wolf Facebook social media campaign. He must have spent hours and hours trawling through our sermon archives, listening to hundreds of sermons, not only of our church... Hunter Bible Church, Maitland Evangelical Church, all of us were meeting in schools, looking for, re, looking for ammunition. And he found a sermon from the lakes back in 2013. So he'd been listening to about six years of our sermons, but he, feel, he felt like, ah, oh, that's, that's ammunition. Uh, and he launched his compa- campaign. And it was a really anxious time. Uh, because it, it really felt like we were going to be removed from the school and have no home to meet. And we were ringing up a whole lot of other venues around the place. And we just, from day to day, week to week, we just didn't know uh, where we were going to be. Uh, but that is, that is our world. Some people are prejudiced against Jesus. But I want to point out that that is only some people. And I just, I don't exactly know how big a minority, but I, th- I think it feels bigger than it actually is. And it's just worth noting that. Um, others reject Jesus reluctantly. And I put reluctantly in inverted commas because I, I was struggling to capture the right word. But anyway, go with it for the moment, right? Others reject Jesus reluctantly like Pontius Pilate. So the Jewish leaders don't have any good grounds to execute Jesus themselves. So they think that they can manipulate the Roman authorities. They can manipulate Roman law and they go to Pontius Pilate. 
Notice their accusation, chapter 23, verse 2. We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. Now, they're distorting the truth to present Jesus in the worst possible light. Jesus wasn't subverting the nation. For goodness sake, love your enemies. What, What sort of... How is that going to subvert the nation? Uh, you know, it just, anyway, it just n- makes no sense. Um, he didn't oppose payment of taxes to Caesar. They asked him that question directly, didn't they? And he said, well, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. You know, pay your taxes to Caesar, but give to God what's God's. Uh, give your lives and your hearts to God. But notice Pilate, it's almost like he dismisses those two first charges and he hones in on our central question, is Jesus the Messiah? He says, are you the king of the Jews? He doesn't know the technical language, the Messiah language. But he says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replies, well, you have said so. So it's not, a, again, it's an elusive answer, isn't it? Pilate comes up with his initial verdict in verse 4. I find no basis for a charge against this man. I find no basis for a charge. And at every point along the way in this trial, Pilate is reluctant to condemn Jesus. It's not the outcome that he wanted. And so as soon as Pilate hears that Jesus was from Galilee, he kind of sees a possible out for him. He can actually just deflect the problem to Herod. Right? Herod and Pilate didn't like each other, but all of a sudden, Herod's a way out. And so this, it formed this nice little alliance between Pilate and Herod. But he, he kind of pushes Jesus over to Herod. Herod's delighted because he's hoping to see a miracle. or you know, He's heard about Jesus um, and he's hoping to see some miracle, you know, some entertainment. But Herod was never going to bring justice for Jesus. We know from the story already that John the Baptist was imprisoned falsely by Herod and then beheaded by Herod for no reason. Uh, And so in the end, because Jesus won't give them entertainment, because Jesus won't answer his questions, he just mocks Jesus, dresses him up like in mock king clothing, sends him back to Pilate. So Pilate has him again. Verse 13, Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers of the people. Um, sorry, the rulers and the people. Now notice what's happened. Initially, it was just the Sanhedrin, but I take it they have now exerted pressure on the whole crowd. And so somehow or other, the crowd that had kind of loved Jesus and uh, enjoyed his miracles and so on, Now they have been pressured by the Sanhedrin to oppose Jesus. Uh, Verse 14, Pilate addresses the crowd, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I found no basis for you. So I've examined him in your presence. I've found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I'll punish him and then release him. Come down to verse 20. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, 
crucify, crucify him. And for the third time, he spoke to them, why? What crime has this man committed? I have found no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I'll have him punished, then release him. I'll punish him just to make you feel better about the whole thing, but then I'll release him because I can't condemn this man to death. But verse 23, with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. Uh, This is just the pressure of the religious leaders and now the crowd. Just pressure, pressure, pressure. So Pilate decided to grant their, their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. Right, Barabbas is released. But the one they asked for, so he was the one they asked for, and they surrendered Jesus to their will. Now what a tragedy. What a travesty of justice. Three times Pilate declares... Jesus is not guilty. And yet by the end, he will just cave in to the pressure, the demands of the crowd to have Jesus crucified. And again, I want to say this is the world we still live in today. Uh, Have a look at the results of a a recent survey. A few years ago, McCrindle uh, came up with Aussie feelings about Jesus and Christianity. Um, I don't know. How does this... um, Just just show me what it, it revealed there, guys. Um, I think you might have to click it. There you go. So surprisingly, 38% of Australians said, I'm Christian. That surprised me. Uh, What else did we get? 26% of Aussies said, I'm opposed to Jesus and Christianity, either strongly opposed or just moderately opposed. Um, But it's interesting, isn't it? That's the minority who were opposed, the 26%. Um, I think those 26% often make it feel like Australia is a deeply anti-Christian nation. Um, but when you survey people, it's not, it's not the case. Because even those who are opposed, only a, a small proportion of them are, are strongly, you know, like fiercely opposed. Um, most Aussies are not opposed. Uh, 36% kind of feel neutral. Um, they just... Ha- they just haven't bothered looking into the evidence. Uh, they haven't kind of captured the relevance of Jesus. And so they just really don't know either way. But I think like Pontius Pilate, that middle group are pressured, just feel the pressure to sideline Jesus, to ignore the evidence, to assume the worst. Uh, I think that's the pressure in our society. Uh, Lots of Aussies go through life without ever properly weighing up the evidence for Jesus. And I think that is a tragedy. Even just at a secular level, he has shaped our society more profoundly than any other individual in history. And yet most people never seriously weigh the evidence for the man Jesus. Now, just let me go back to that, uh, you know, that guy trying to kick us out of the school five years ago. At first, when all this was happening, at first, I thought the school principal was, was anti-Christian as well. Um, I, I remember being called up before the school principal. 
I felt like a, a, a naughty... I, it reminded me of growing up, you know, because sitting outside the principal's office, I'd been there uh, quite a number of times uh, in my school years. Uh, and there I was sitting outside and came into her office and she gave me a list of five topics that we were banned from preaching about in church, five things that were off limits. And she said, if ever you speak, or preach anything controversial, you need to submit it in writing to me before you preach it. And I said, I, I, God gave me these words, right? It just sort of came to me. I said, every week I preach controversial stuff. It didn't, it didn't help calm her fears. I said, every week I preach controversial stuff because that's the character of God's word. Uh, God's word challenges us to repent. Uh, every passage in God's word is about calling us to repent, to actually change the way we live and change the way we think in alignment with the truth about God and his son, Jesus. Uh, and she kind of, I think she got the point, and so she, we didn't have to submit uh, the sermons uh, after all. But, but as I say, it felt like she was opposed to us, but over time I realised, no, she wasn't anti-Christian. It's just that she felt the pressure. to She, she didn't want to get caught on the wrong side of history. And it just felt like this big groundswell, the Human Rights Advocacy Australia are actually making this complaint and if she doesn't kind of do the right thing, then you know, she could get caught in the firing line herself. And so her opposition wasn't, it wasn't kind of intended or initiated by her, she was just kind of responding. It was kind of reluctant, just like it was for Pilate. Right? Some people reluctantly reject... Uh, and we, we just want to keep on calling on the people from our region to, to have some just intellectual integrity, to actually put the time aside to investigate the claims of Jesus, to put aside prejudice, to put aside fear, to not cave into peer pressure but to genuinely weigh the evidence and come to a thoughtful decision for themselves. And this is why we just run this life series again and again and again. We're running it in about five weeks' time. And it has been such a delight over the years to see so many people from our region put their fears and prejudices aside and weigh the evidence. Now, at the start, I promised to stir your hearts with optimism and hope. And maybe I haven't done that yet, uh, and so I, I want, I've got one more point to make, right? Because I want to press beyond this passage, um, because it is a dark day, Jesus' crucifixion, and, and the trial leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. But before I finish, I just want to consider God's verdict on Jesus. Right? We've heard the Sanhedrin and Pontius Pilate and the crowd and Herod. Um, now, we'll see next week, Jesus is indeed handed over. He is crucified, but it's Easter Sunday when God declares his verdict on Jesus, right? So the trial and the crucifixion, that was Friday, but Sunday's coming, right? Easter Sunday is God's declaration to the world that Jesus really is 
God's eternal King, the Messiah. And at the end of the day, what matters is not what the Sanhedrin think or Pontius Pilate or Herod or... At the end of the day, it doesn't... It shouldn't worry you what... You should be concerned about what your friends and family think. But their opinion is not what matters at the end of the day, is it? It's what God matters. He's the one that we will stand before and give an account to at the end of time. And in the days after the resurrection, the disciples will stand before the Jewish crowd in Jerusalem. Listen to these words, so courageous. Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. We got it wrong, tragically. Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And those who accepted this message were baptised and about 3,000 of them were added to their number that day. And what you see in the book of Acts is just this, this fire has been lit with the resurrection of Jesus. And in amidst all the opposition, Jesus builds his church. And that's what he's been doing for 2,000 years. I noticed for the first time this week, as you look through the book of Acts, the, the disciples will appear before the Sanhedrin four times. And each time, they are given supernatural courage right, to stand in front of the people who are the leaders of their people. And they will declare again and again, this Jesus, whom you crucified, God's verdict is he's the Messiah. God has made him both Lord and Messiah. And even some of the Sanhedrin will believe the good news. And thousands and thousands of Jewish people and then the gospel will spread from there. And it has been doing that for the last 2,000 years. And this is the good news that has been at the heart of our church for the past 21 years. And we want it to be the heart of our church for the next 21 years and beyond. Ruth, come on back up. Um, Ruth, just, you know, just as we reflect, so we, we're a little bit negative at the start, you know, just looking at difficulties and so on. Um, how have we seen God at work over these 21 years? Um, what we've seen is that when we thought there was a setback, it was often actually God's hand in providing a new opportunity. Um, yeah, so um, the, the negative press, um, people came to our church because they thought, they saw it and, and wanted to come to a church that might have, um, someone might have... Might have said, offended one of the bishops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and, and so, and when we were nearly kicked out of the school... Yeah, it, it, it meant that we had a real heart to keep uh, raising money, um, trying to work out how we could get onto this block. We were mm. looking in, on Gumtree for marquees and all sorts of things. Thankfully, God had a different yeah. plan. Winter would have been cold. But God stirred the hearts of his people mm. to actually say, let's, let's build a building. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, we showed the baptisms earlier. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, yes, so it's been a wonderful blessing to have people who have been baptised, have become Christians and stayed Christian and continued to share the good news with mm. others. So yeah. we've seen people become Christians through these people and so many more people have been baptised. Yeah. So every Easter Sunday um, we've been doing baptisms. Yeah. It's become a tradition. Four, four more this Easter. And what about our kids? Um, 
Well, actually, I was just remembering that yeah. Easter Sunday story. Yeah. Um, we were down at the beach oh, one yeah, time yeah. doing the baptism, and it's kind of in front of where we ended up was in front of the resort, and this person was very unhappy because we were ruining her long hot, long weekend. Could we not have picked a better day to be doing baptisms down at the beach? Because Easter the Sunday, <laughs> Resurrection Sunday, we're having baptism. Yes. So anyway, yeah, perspective. Anyway. Ironic. Yes. Ironic, yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we have had many kids come along um, yeah. and that's been such a joy, seeing kids become Christians as they've grown up in church but also who've come along to youth group and kids' church. And as I said, um, two of these people are doing um, full-time ministry. Yeah, two of these kids are now yeah. in full-time yeah. ministry. Yeah. Um, and and we've had, we showed a photo recently. They look happier today yeah. than they did. Most of the time. <laughs> Yeah, and we've got, is it like 11 or so doing um, Bible college at the moment yeah. of, of the yeah. people who are part yeah. of our church? And Ruth, so. this week, we've, we've got a team from Moore Theological College joining us this week uh, for all of our activities of uh, uh, 21st and, and of outreach and the street food night and mm. so on, yeah. yeah. Um, so this is our constant prayer that in spite of the setbacks and opposition, that will come. Right, because God has kind of forewarned us. That's the character of things. But our heart is that the good news will continue to go out and it will continue to be passed to the next generation. We pray for our kids. Uh, and we, we don't want to be naive, right? There will, it will be tough at times. But we don't want to catastrophize or despair either. Right? That's the character of our world, catastrophize, despair, it's always been hard, but what great grounds of optimism we have. Jesus is building his church. He's always done it. He's always done it when at least expected, and yet he continues to grow and build his church. So, Ruth, can you lead us in prayer as we finish up? Let's pray together. Father God, thank you that you are still building your church today. Thank you, Lord God, that even when it looks like things are going wrong, you are in control mm. and it is your plan and you will use all things for good. Father, we thank you for what you've done among us over the last 21 years, for the way you've brought people here, for the way you've saved people and grown them in their faith in you, for the way you've been using us to love and serve one another. Lord, we thank you for the way you've provided for our needs. We thank you, Lord God, for the way you've um, strengthened us in faith and number. Lord, we are sorry that we have not always trusted in your fatherly care. We're sorry that we try to take over and run our lives our own way. Please forgive us. Please help us to keep coming to you, acknowledging Jesus as our King, saying sorry to you and knowing that we can trust you to forgive. Help us as we hold on to the good news that we will share it with others. Give us boldness, Lord. Help us to speak faithfully and clearly to those around us. And Lord, we pray that you will stir in the hearts of those in our community. Father, help them to weigh the evidence for Jesus and find forgiveness and hope in him. And this Easter, Lord, we pray that you will use this time to bring people back to yourself. And to, for those who have drifted away, who were among us, we pray, Father, for mercy. Mm. And we pray that you will bring them back to yourself. 
We pray that you will stir in the hearts of our children and the children of this region. Lord, that your kingdom will continue to grow for many, many years here in this place and across Australia. We pray, Father, that you will continue to grow your your churches in Australia and throughout the world. And we pray all this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen.